A longtime pastor has walked away from the faith. I'll respond to that. One listener asks if I'm a feminist, and another listener tells me why he thinks I'm wrong. We'll talk about that and a lot more on today's Corey Act show. This is the best thing, the best thing could be going to call my shot too aggressively here, but I am going to start the show by saying this. This has the potential to be the best of the 100 and some odd Corey Truax shows that have ever been published. I'm really excited to get to all of what I have prepared for you today. We will dive into it here in just a moment, but first, my name is Corey Truax. I'll be your host for the hour. Among many other things, I am the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina on 123 in Greenville. We'd love to have you any given Sunday morning at 1030. And we are dedicated to smarter, deeper, better talk about everything here on the Corey Truax Show. And it is a show certainly about everything today. And so I want to dive in very quickly. Two listeners sent me a link to a Twitter feed that I found compelling and interesting and needs response. That's where we're going to start today. There's a gentleman named Dave Gass, I believe is how you pronounce his last name. It's G-A-S-S. That's best I could do on a pronunciation. He was a longtime pastor, and he published 40 tweets this uh, last week. That's called a tweet thread, where he opens up by saying, let me find that first. Uh, uh, here you, here, here's how he starts. After 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 of those years being an evangelical pastor, I am walking away from the faith. So this is a guy who's been in Christianity, he says, for 40 years, and he's walking away, and then he explains why, 20 of 20 of those years as an actual minister. He was getting so much feedback, and a lot of it wasn't positive, and I, a little side note there, if, if evangelicals, if Christians could go ahead and treat everybody well, even those that walk away from the faith, those who are outside the faith, if we could just be nice, that would be very helpful. Let's be people who even love our enemies. This is a biblical idea. He, he had to hide his tweets, That's make them go private. And so I can't, I couldn't get back in to read all 40. I read the original 40. So I'm working from memory, and then I'm working from two other articles written about Mr. Gass that quotes a lot of these tweets. And this is all I want to do. I just want to walk through the things that he said. Consider the the significance of this in a person's life. Someone who spent 40 years of his life, the guy's I think in his early 50s, in evangelicalism, a 20-year stint as a pastor, he's been in professional evangelicalism, there's consequences to walking away. It's a big thing to say, this fundamental part of who I am, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, and not just functionally on Sundays and how I try to live my life, but actually the way in which I make my living, this also comes from my faith. This is significant for a person to do, and so I immediately am very interested to hear what he has to say. I don't see someone saying, I'm walking away from the faith and want to turn them off. I immediately want to know, well, how did you arrive here? So to begin, just a couple quick thoughts. I do want to quote Jesus. So one of one of the things he said that's very important here is talking about people who left following Jesus. So he has his 12 closest disciples, he actually had three that were particularly close, and then there was another group of, I think, 70, and then they got the larger multitudes that were following him. And some people along the way stop. They stop following Jesus, and the disciples want to know why that is. And he said, well, they went out from us. They're, they're, not, from, they're not with us anymore because they were not of us. 
if, if they had, I'm quoting Jesus here, if they had been of us, they would have continued on, but they went out, that it might become plain that they are, I think he says, that it might become plain that they are not of us, or they're not all of us. The point here being, there is no such thing as walking away from the faith. Those that have the faith don't walk away from it. The, those that walk away from it never actually had it. And what, uh, that's, that's the biblical truth. And what I notice from those, especially with Dave Gass here, if he, if he came to me and he gave me all the complaints he's, I'm about to read to you about the Christian faith, and he says, I'm walking away from this faith, and then he describes it, I would say to him, good, walk away from that faith. It wasn't the real one anyway. Whatever you were practicing, it wasn't the real, genuine, biblical faith anyway. So that Americanized, Southernized, th- this... Uh, th- I hate to call it, I don't want to be too mean about it, but this faith that's not purely biblical, that has as part of it subcultures in America, will of course walk away from that. This is one of the weaknesses of American Christianity. We Americans think we're the beginners of everything, and here we have this ancient Jewish, ancient Eastern faith, comes from the Middle East, and we think we're the first ones. We think, the, we think Christianity started a couple hundred years ago here in the United States of America, and there's a version of Christianity that ex- has existed here that has deceived people, and people have followed after it, and then it disappoints them, and they walk away from a faith that was never the real one in the first place. And so, with that, here we go. Here's some of what Dave Gass had to say. So he says, after 40 years of being a devout follower, 20 years being an evangelical pastor, I'm walking away from the faith. Even This is the quote. Even though this has been a massive bomb drop in my life, it's been decades in the making. He goes on to say, when he was reading mythology books as a high school kid, it dawned on him how much the deity of the Bible sounded like what he read of the mythology and that the seed of doubt never went away. Now, I would immediately, I mean, I don't want to argue with him. That's never going to be productive. But I would say to him, man, I'd love to know what you're talking about. What are the ways in which the mythologies of Rome and Greece are like the God of the Bible? Just fundamentally, the story of the God of the Bible is nothing like the gods of Ro- of Rome and Greece. You might want to argue that some of the powers that the mythological gods of Rome and Greece have in in collection with one another might be the powers, the sovereignty that the God of the Bible has. But, I mean, th- those gods have rivals. They fight one another. Specifically, a theme of the Bible is there is no god like this god. Like, he's the god of gods, king of kings. There's no one like him. So even in that way, he's not like the, the gods of Rome and Greece. There's no, there's no rival to him. And then, even in that, they were, they were jealous against one another. They would, uh, th- they, would ha- they would have these little triflings among one another in the mythologies. And that's not ever portrayed in the Bible. The God of the Bible was portrayed as sovereign overall and not having these kind of trifling fights. I could go on about his first point, but it's not really it. So he just says, even early on, I read Greek mythologies and Roman mythologies, and it sounded like the God I was following. And I would I mean, I mean, would argue with him, no, it doesn't. You, you read the Bible wrong, if that's what you thought. I remember I'm reading from two different stories here. I don't have the tweet thread in front of me because he made it private. He also made this argument that he basically says he was miserable. Then uh, and he was miserable in his Christianity. He says, my marriage was a sham. Prayer was never answered. 
Miracles were never performed. People died. Children rebelled. Marriages failed. Addictions occurred. All at the same rate as non-believers. The system just doesn't work. So his argument here is from... It's, I guess two thoughts on this. The argument is about pragmatics. So if the faith worked, I measure it this way. I set up my measurement. If Christianity were real, these things would have happened. The following would have happened. And so I set up my test for God. I tested God, and he did not pass my test. That's the standard he set up. Jesus specifically says to, in his ministry, for those that want a sign, specifically here he says, there were never miracles performed. Jesus says, you're an adulterous and wicked generation looking for a sign. I mean, he's even saying there, you guys had the prophets, you've got me, and if the prophets and me weren't enough, I'm not going to do a miracle and you believe, because it's not the miracles that will do it. It's Your heart is hard. If I, I could do an incredible miracle in front of you, still wouldn't believe because of the state of your wicked heart. I want to get back to that. So he, he set up his own standard, his own test. God didn't pass his test. It wasn't a God, it wasn't a promise God made. It wasn't a standard God promised him. And God didn't meet that standard. But there's a second issue there. And that second issue is related to the first. So, so he his, his first issue is he set up a standard. He, he set up a test for God. I'm going to test you, God, like I guess Gideon did. And then the, the standard I've set, you haven't met. The other part that he missed is that Jesus actually says, in the world you will have trouble. That's the nature of this world. The, the world has fallen. There's going to be trouble in it. And so on one side, he sets up a, a test that God never submitted to. What, what Dave has done here, respectfully as I can, has set himself up as God. I've decided what the way something will prove true. God, you will prove yourself true to me if you'll do the following. And God will look at you, and that is your attitude, and say, I don't serve you. I don't exist for you. We are his creation, not the other way around. He even he said here, before he said my marriage was a sham, he said his marriage was not all that it was promised to be. Ho, oh, hold on. What? Who promised you your marriage was going to be perfect? That it wasn't going to take work? You know, I'm a married guy, but a joke I've made, but it's, it's accurate. One of the things I, f- I find people, like in long-term unmarried relationships that are having trouble, they decide, you know what, what we really need to do is get married and commit ourselves to each other. Oh, so two sinners who are, even redeemed sinners, who are having trouble with each other, you know what you should do is commit to each other. Now we got two sinners in the same house. You think it's always going to be great? No. And then often, the two sinners that are in the marriage feel like they're not getting along well. They say, you know what we should do? We should add a third sinner. Let's have a baby. And so we just keep adding sinners to the house because we're all sinners. And then we are surprised, and it seems like Dave is surprised here that things didn't go swimmingly for him. And I say all this, and it occurs to me that I sound a little acerbic, maybe a lot acerbic, like I sound mean about this. And I'd love to be able to talk with him just one-on-one just to say what I said just now but in a different tone. Hey, man, who told you your marriage was going to be awesome? God didn't promise you perfection. When you say prayer was never answered, you mean it wasn't answered the way you wanted? You mean you didn't get what you want, like God wasn't a vending machine? You put in good works, you you put in effort, and then God gives you what you want? You say mir- miracles miracles were never performed? The, the way that I read Scripture, I'm called a cessationist? No, I don't. 
of course miracles weren't performed. Not any that we see, because that's miracles were for a time, where where God was certifying who His speaker was and who wasn't, who wasn't His person, and and now we have the Word of God. Yeah, and you say, well, people died and children rebelled and marriages failed and addictions occurred. Yeah, that's actually a guarantee in the Bible. You, you set up a test for God that he didn't agree to, and he specifically gave you a book to, like, be nice. God, God was kind and gracious to give you a book that says, oh, the standard you're setting up, you, you're not God. You don't get to stand up, set up the standards. The world actually works differently. And so here we have this guy, he's walked away from the faith because he set up a false religion, and the false religion failed him. To which I would say to Dave Gass, good man, that false religion needs to fail you because you need to come to the real one, the, the real faith in Jesus. And I would rather you walk away and call yourself an atheist or agnostic than to keep following after a false, fake faith. I have some more I want to say about this. We have to take our first break. We'll come back finish up this story and talk about a lot more on this edition of the Corey Act Show. Welcome back to the Corey Act Show. We're going to continue here in a moment with this story of Dave Gass, this megachurch pastor, at least a large church pastor who's walking away from the faith. But first, let me remind you, if you would be so kind, find me on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter. Find Corey Act for the Corey Act Show. I'd love for you to follow along during the week for more content there. And another reminder, I have a second podcast now through the Palmetto Family Podcast Network. It is called South Carolina Connections with Corey Truax. I would love for you to follow along, subscribe, rate, and review that show as well. So here's what we know thus far. Dave Gass called himself a Christian for 40 years. He was a pastor for 20 years. And his primary contention as to why he's walking away from the faith is he thought he was given the impression along the way that Christianity was going to be like a vending machine and he could get good stuff out of it. But because he struggled and there was abuse in his childhood and his marriage didn't go well and things bad happened, well, bad things happened, and therefore, the Christianity can't be real. It can't be true. I want to get to the specifics of his tweets again here in a second. But just as a word of, I guess, compassion, you've heard me say on the show before if you've listened I think the most compelling argument against any theism, like any uh, most compelling and best argument against God, any God, is suffering. I understand people that struggle with it. They struggle being able to understand if God is good and God is powerful, why do bad things happen? I will admit to you, I don't know why. I've never struggled with that. Every time something terrible happens, it just seems natural to me. Maybe it's because I have a a really, a, I hate to say well-informed, it makes me sound like I'm smarter than people. I don't want to say well-informed. I have a rich theology, a deep theology of depravity. Like, I read Genesis 3, and whether it's a literal story or not, I tend to believe it is literal. I saw mankind fall. I saw God pronounce a curse on the snake, on the woman, on the earth, on the man. And so anytime a bad thing happens, a divorce, cancer, earthquake, I just go, yeah, that's the earth I'm on. I saw, I saw it in Genesis 3. I saw that happen. Like, we, we all, we, we, did you all read Genesis 3? And so I don't know why, I guess that's why I don't struggle with this, but a lot of people do for whatever reason. And I guess maybe it is a, a lack of a theology of depravity in the earth that we're on. But when things go wrong, 
that's actually the natural state of the world that we're in under the curse of sin. And Christianity's promise is that one day that curse will be solved with the return of Christ. And that even in his first coming and defeating sin on the cross, we get little pictures of that along the way. So this is where he first comes from. Dave Gass comes from this thought, I'm walking away from the faith because I've struggled with it for a long time. That stuff went bad. My life wasn't good. And when it wasn't good, it made me think, I've concluded, God's not there. That's, that is the depth that he's coming to with his conclusion, to which I've just said thus far. No one made you those promises. Literally the opposite promise was made. So this is something for us to recognize, and I'll get to those tweets in a second. This is a version of Christianity that's taught a lot in America. Here's a really scary truth. Dave Gass is not the only pastor who's going to get up to preach this Sunday who has thought the same things, is thinking the same things, and struggling with the same things. There are plenty of unredeemed sheep. And, well, I guess you can't be an unredeemed sheep. There's fake sheep. They're actually goats. There are plenty of unredeemed shepherds. Folks that have not come to true salvation, they're following along what their parents uh, came along with. They, they end up having in their own heads this idea of self-preservation. They know it's their job, it's their living, it's, it's how they support their family, and so they go along with ministry as a business, as a profession, and deep down they don't believe it, they don't get it. This is something for us to be cautious of and how we teach Christianity to our own kids, and that we're cautious about whom we listen to that there are plenty of false converts out there. All right, we've got to get to this tweet thread because it's got a lot to do on the show today. Here's some more of the stuff that Dave Gass said. Eventually, I pulled the lever and dropped the bomb, meaning he publicly decided he wasn't a Christian. He says, career, marriage, family, social standing, network, reputation, they were all gone in an instant. And honestly, I didn't intend to fully walk away, but the way the church turned on me forced me to leave permanently. I do wonder what that means. What do you mean the church turned on you? Because, for example, Dave, if you're telling us you don't believe the Bible or in Christianity, well, you can't be a pastor anymore. That's a necessity. We have the standards for pastors in the Bible. You don't meet it anymore. You mean your wife, who you brought in the ministry and you you let, assume you led in spiritual things for a long time, and then you tell her you're walking away from the faith and you're an atheist, you mean that didn't go well in your marriage? You mean in your network of pastors and your reputation amongst Christians wasn't as strong when you said, hey guys, I think you're all wrong. Brother, I shouldn't call you brother right now, should I? There's consequences to your actions, man. And you should be treated with kindness because this is what Jesus would say when they're an unbeliever, Treat them well. Love the unbeliever. Love your enemies. Love those who despise you, revile you. And if anyone in the church treated you badly, of course we should call that out. But what what did you thought? What did you think was going to happen? What was the consequence of turning away from the faith? That's actually a guardrail set up for us. One of the guardrails set up for us as Christians is the community of the church, the community of believers. So that when you wander away, there's, there's voices there to call you back. And if you continue to walk away, it's a guardrail for the rest of us to know what, what the, what the, uh, where the door is on the way in and on the way out of, of what actual orthodox faith is. More from his tweets. 
He says, I was a part of a system that enslaves people, and I was both a slave and a slave driver. We called chains freedom and misery happiness. We had impossible standards that we could not meet, so we turned the attention on others so the spotlight wasn't on our own inadequacies. I, I don't. He didn't elaborate in his tweets on that. I would say the exact... I mean, this is, again, this, this is just his own, his own opinion here. He said he's part of a system that enslaves people. That, what, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. This is one of the themes of Christianity. The thing that actually enslaves people is sin. Addiction is a, is a slavery, and it's sin. Your own pride, your own chasing after wealth, your own chasing after your own reputation. These are things that are slaveries. They enslave the heart of man to go out and try to gather things for himself, and you're not free. You're not actually free to stop caring what your reputation is amongst the world and how much wealth you have, and you're not free to be who you are in Christ. You really want to know what this other person's opinion is. That's what I would call slavery. I've lived in those slaveries, and the freedom actually comes in Christ. So he says, you know, I was in a system of slavery. I would say the system you're going into is slavery, slavery to sin. I know this, without Christ, I can't stop sinning. I'm a slave to it. He says they called chains freedom and misery happiness. One of my favorite Psalms says that the boundaries, the lines, the lines that the Lord lays, the boundaries of the Lord fall in pleasant places. That is such a glorious truth. The boundaries God set up, the ch- you want to call them chains? Fine. But the, the name of the psalm, or excuse me, the words of the psalm is, the boundaries God set up, they fall in such pleasant places. The boundaries God set up about sex, sexuality, and marriage, oh, they fall in such pleasant places for me. They protect me. The boundaries God set up for how much I'm supposed to work versus rest, oh, those boundaries fall in such pleasant places for me. The boundaries God set up about how much I'm supposed to care about how much wealth I have versus how much I'm storing up treasures in heaven, oh, those boundaries are in such pleasant places. Because when I get any of those out of whack, I actually go make myself miserable. When I cross the boundaries the Lord has set, I become overworked or I care too much about relational things or I, or, or I care too much about how much I'm how much I'm collecting for myself, oh, those are unpleasant. When I pass over those boundaries, the boundaries have been laid in pleasant places for me. He tweets further that after he got out of the faith and he started creating community with people who were outside the faith, he says, I learned that love is real, that acceptance is possible, that life is vibrant and full. So he, he finds all those things outside of the church. Yeah, so acceptance is possible. When you're in a system that is everything is acceptable, everything is good, that's not actually a loving system because you can be self-destructive, you can do things that will hurt you, and there's no standard and no one to say, hey, you're hurting yourself. That, that's, what you're doing is not going to be good for you. That's not a system where love is real. That's actually not called love at all. Love has an element to it that's willing to say, hey, what you're doing isn't good. That's not, a, that's not love. Acceptance without condition isn't actually love. The acceptance that you have in Christ is actually good for you. It's healthy for you. It will even it'll make you better. But if, yeah, the world accepting, yeah, whatever you want. We don't love our kids that way. Our attitude towards our kids isn't, yeah, do whatever you want. We have standards that are good for them. 
He says the church burdens people with fear, shame, and guilt. I, again, you're just talking about, I guess, your own experience here, but the message of the Bible is not that. The message of the Bible is, again, the exact, same, the exact opposite. The message of the Bible would say, you've got fear? Count, count on the God of all things. He's called in 1 Corinthians the God of comfort. You've got shame? Oh, you can lay that shame down. Jesus bears your shame. Oh, you feel guilt? Oh, oh, put that down. Don't carry around guilt. The guilt for your sin was laid on the cross and it was punished there. You don't have to carry around guilt. That's the message of Christianity. And if the, listen, the one you were following, Dave, the, if the one you were following made you fear and made you feel shame and guilt, I can just promise you this, man, it wasn't the real one. And I'm sorry that, that you were taught that. I'm sorry that Christians placed on you shame and guilt and didn't give you the good news that is the gospel. That you do, in your flesh, you have shame and guilt. But it doesn't have to stay there. That Jesus came and lived how we couldn't live, died the death we deserve to die, to solve that problem. More from his tweets. He said, during this time where he was leaving the faith, during this time... I found something amazing. I found a handful of people who were more Christian than any Christian I had ever met. Basically saying, non-believers were nicer. Listen, that's probably true in a lot of ways. That's something for us as Christians to recognize. I'm not even going to argue with them there. I don't doubt that you would have found people nicer to you than some people in the faith are. That's something for us to work on. But it doesn't mean the claims of the Bible are false. It means you found some nice people. He says he couldn't, this is more of his tweets, he couldn't maintain the facade anymore. His internal stress started to show physical symptoms, and he just needed to get out. So to which I would say to him, that is, that's good. Don't live fake. Do get out. This is one of my favorite quotes from Matt Chandler. I think I'm finished quoting his tweets. There might be a couple more. I don't know um, that I'll get into. But Matt Chandler has this great theme that is, Christianity is a terrible hobby. If you don't mean it, why are you showing up on Sunday morning? Fishing would be, I don't, I don't think fishing's better. His story, like his, his sermon illustration is, fishing would be way better. If you don't actually mean this, if you're not actually following Jesus, go to the lake, go to the pool, go to a Cowboys game, watch football, do something else. Why is this your hobby? What a weird hobby Christianity is. If you don't actually mean it, don't do it. That's a girl I'd give to you right now if you're listening to me. If you don't mean it, don't say it. Be genuine, be real. One of the things we have to recognize is that there are a ton of false Christianities being taught. They're not the real ones, they're not the biblical ones. And that's what happened to Dave Gass here. He grew up in, he was taught, he was discipled in a fake Christianity, and it failed him because it's fake. It wasn't a Christianity based on Jesus, not the real one. Maybe one more tweet here. He tweets near the end, I pastored mega churches and tiny churches. I did college camp, youth, music, preaching, and church ministries. Everything in the church work except for nursery. And what I saw was people desperate for the system to work for them. Again, what you're walking away from isn't the real thing, man. That's so obvious. That's not the call of Christianity. Find that, the, find that in the scripture for me. Find in the scripture where the call to the faith is, come be a part of a system that, quote, works for you. What does that even mean? It can't possibly be the same thing for everybody, what works for you. 
The call of Christ, Dave, is to pick up your cross and follow him. In the world you'll have trouble. You can count on this promise, this blessed assurance, that whatever you're giving up in this world, that getting Jesus in the in the next is better, getting Jesus in this world is better. I did think I did find one more tweet I wanted to get to here. In 40 years, I never witnessed a single event that was supernatural. Not one. Time and again, I watched people die of cancer. I, what was the end of that? Um, God didn't answer prayer is what he says over healings. So this is again, if someone told you that, man, they would just lie to you. This is one of my problems with charismatic Christianity in certain denominations. That there is, there is no, there's no reason to believe the version of Christianity you see on most, on most Christian television. Being a cessationist that I am, what that means is God did miracles in big public ways to establish who was genuine and who wasn't. So there, there could be a test to the people that this miraculous power was someone actually working for God. And then now that which is perfect has come, This is now that we have the Scripture, we have the Bible to measure who's real and who's not. We don't need signs and wonders. And I would again quote to you back to Jesus. Jesus would say to even you, Dave Gass, you are a wicked and adulterous generation that you, you're setting up to me. You're saying to God, heal this cancer, otherwise you're not real. And God would say, I don't answer to you. And what do you do for me, man? I actually have seen that. I've seen cancer, I have seen cancer in somebody be totally healed. Now, I, I believe God did that through modern medicine. Sometimes I've seen cancer. I've seen in my own personal life. Cancer kills someone. I've also seen cancer healed when they were being treated. I've seen cancer go away when they weren't really being treated. I've seen all that. So what's that mean? These aren't the tests we set up. This is a, this is a fake Christianity that he created and that he's now fallen away from. I think I have time to do at least one more in this tweet thread. He says, as an adult, my marriage was a sham and a constant source of pain for me. I did everything I was supposed to, workshops, counseling, marriage books, but my marriage became, but my marriage never became what I was promised it would be. Bro, first, I'm sorry. I bet that's terrible. But who promised you that? And who and whoever did that, let's let, let's go talk about that. Are you out there, do, hey, pastor, preacher, teacher, are you promising that? Parent, are you promising that? Are you promising, hey, do all the right things, follow all the rules, and everything you do is going to be great? If you are giving anyone that impression and you consider yourself to be a Christian teacher, stop it. Because I'm going to toss this out here. I'm about to be a, a, sound like a Pharisee. Heck, Paul did something similar. Paul goes out and says, I was a better Jew than all you were. He talked about his own great behavior. Listen, guys, listen to me real quick, except for a couple exceptions in my life, some big, maybe one that's really large. I have followed the rules, man. I've done the right things, and I've abstained from the stuff I'm supposed to abstain from. Life's not always been easy. Now, my life has been pretty easy. But I've had my share of turmoil. And it never surprises me. Because the real... Story of Scripture says there will be trouble on this earth. Here he is, his, his, uh, his question here on his marriage. I did what I was supposed to. I behaved like I was supposed to. And I didn't get 
what I wanted. And so Christianity's fake. Bringing that's his conclusion, and that's what brings me to the final tweet here. At least the one I'm last one I'm going to read. I was raised in a hyper fundamentalist family, and it felt good to be in a system that promised all the answers and solutions to life. The problem is the system didn't work. The promises were empties. The answers were lies. To which I would say to Dave Gass, you're right, man. If you were raised in hyper-fundamentalism, it is fake. If you're raised in a system that says, we have all the solutions for your life to be awesome, that's fake and they're lying to you. If you grew up in that system and you're listening to me, that's lies. All that's lies. And it is fake. The promises are empty. But the promises of God aren't empty. The promises of God are plenteous. One of, one of those promises is redemption. If you repent and follow after Jesus, then you inherit eternal life. One of those promises as well, though, is you're going to have trouble. You'll be reviled. There will be people not like you. They'll persecute you. They'll lie about you. You'll be betrayed. You'll lose some things. You'll even lose some of the good stuff of life, but you'll gain an eternity for it. There's all kinds of promises, and God keeps the promises in the actual Bible, but where others are making promises and slapping God's name on there, they should repent. And whoever needs to hear this, and even if you want to send it on to somebody, that if, the people who have walked away from the faith, let me just say this with some compassion. Some people probably lied to you. They sold you something that the Bible does not actually say, and it's hurt you. That's not your fault. But there's a real Jesus. There's a real gospel. And that one will not fail you. And that's one maybe we need to explore a little bit more on the show in the future. We've got to get off these tweets and get on to some more news. We'll do that when we come back for the remainder of the Corey Act show. Welcome in for the final segment of the Corey Act show. We're going to skip sports this week so we can fill up this last segment with nothing but actual content uh, out that, is, that stays fairly serious. So first, I had a question on Instagram this week regarding feminism. And basically the question is, would you call yourself a feminist? And so I want to go through this because I think we need to think through this from my tribe. You know, I think my political tribe being free market, traditional conservatism, more, more specifically my tribe is reformed evangelicalism. In this term, feminism, as it uh, as it becomes more, I guess it's certainly already mainstream, but I think its definition is a little fuzzy, and it, there's a we're in a cultural moment where that's a big topic, is where we stand on women's rights. And so it's something for the Christian, the believer, certainly for the conservative to have an, an informed opinion on. And so just uh, let me give you a little history and what I actually think about feminism and what I call myself. When feminism meant the first and second waves of feminism, I wouldn't mind being called a feminist at all. I would, I don't mind even saying proudly, yeah, call me a feminist. Call Corey Truax a feminist for the first and second wave. First wave feminism takes us back 100 years. That's, that's just really primarily issues of voting and I would say some stuff about property rights and owning property for women. This should have been a no-brainer. Like, when feminism means women should be able to vote and own property, that should be like 100%. We should have 100% agreement in the country that an adult woman has every right an adult male does to vote. This is easy. 
to call yourself a feminist when it means women and men should be able to vote and own property at the same rate and have the same rights. There was a second wave of feminism that I would I would say is mostly no-brainer, mostly stuff that we would all we should all say, yeah, that's great. This is a good idea. For example, yeah, if a woman wants to work and go to college and have a career that are we thought of as traditionally male, yeah, of course she should. That's not hard. The idea of uh, like some of the some of the laws we've had in the past regarding like domestic violence and the definition of rape inside marriage, some of that that changed in the sixties and seventies. Like this stuff should be really easy. Like of course women should be able to have equality in the workplace and not be sexually harassed and be protected from sexual or physical abuse in their marriage. Like again, we should have a hundred percent agreement. This is no brainer. If feminism meant the things we've covered thus far, then we should all go, yep, we're feminists. That's true. And then we hit third wave feminism that is harder to get on board with. For example, it is in that third wave of feminism that you start getting some of these stats out of college campuses that were like one out of five or one out of six women have been raped on college campuses. And you recognize, okay, that's absurd. It can't possibly be true. And I've given the stat before from the UN. In the Rwandan genocide where rape was thought of as a weapon, the rape rate in Rwanda was like less than 10%. Are you telling me there's more rapes on college campuses than in Rwanda during the genocide? That's not true. And you recognize, oh, we've changed the definition of rape to mean I was getting harassing calls. And so, like, you start changing the language about what rape means and doesn't mean. And while I have some empathy towards the idea of rape culture, you have excesses of that language where a guy is overly flirty and we talk about it being rape culture, and I can't get on board. Or also that third wave feminism gets into something that, I mean, I get their frustration, but I can't get behind. Um, that it was third wave feminism that said, we got to stop the slut shaming. Like when a girl is sexually promiscuous, she has to stop being derided. Like when a guy is sexually promiscuous, he gets celebrated. All right, so I also find it's a problem that men, unredeemed, unchristian men, talk about the sexual act, like they even used this term back in the day, scoring. You scored, right? Women aren't a game. That's not how this works. And so that's a problem. But instead of <laughs> the third wave feminine resp- feminism's response to, well, women are looked down on when they're sexually promiscuous and men are celebrated. All right, well, let's look, let's look down on the men. Let there be some shame for the guy that chases after a bunch of women to use them for his own gratification. Let's not take shame away altogether. Shame actually has a, has a good place. In a lot of cultures throughout human history, it helps control behaviors that are antisocial. And so third-wave feminism was this, we're going to reclaim what it means to be slutty. All right, well, I'm not on board for that because that dehumanizes a woman. And the same, the same way, though, that it's dehumanizing for a man to behave in a slutty way as well. And so that's third-wave feminism adds that on. And then just general sexual liberation from third-wave feminism, that there is some empowerment to prostitution and pornography and, and women using their sexuality in an empowered way. This is not, it's not good for women, and obviously coming from a Christian worldview, this is not, I wouldn't consider it empowering at all. It's objectification. And so third-wave feminism goes this extra step that makes it impossible for me to be called a feminist, right? Because if, 
all the things that come along with first and second wave feminism add to them the third wave, well, I'm not on board. I can't get on. But if feminism just meant, yeah, women should be able to own property and vote and work and not be harassed, I'm in, and we should all call ourselves feminists. So as that question came up, are you a feminist? Sure. I'm a first and second wave feminist, and I cannot get on board with third wave feminism. So there you go. On Is Corbett X a feminist? That is the answer. Next, last week on the show, I did a fairly long monologue from uh, the building up to a David French article where he talked about Christians losing their witness because of how guys like Franklin Graham have treated Donald Trump. I got a response from a listener that I want to read to you. His name is Paul. And when you have responses, I wish you would do what Paul did. What Paul did here was awesome. He went and friended me on Facebook. He wrote to me on on this topic where he disagreed because one of the things I like to do on the show is a model healthy disagreement that you can disagree with somebody, be on a different side, and you can actually listen, and it's not going to hurt you. This is like snowflake culture. I hate when people use that term, but the way I use it I actually like because I think snowflakes are everywhere. It's not just college campuses. I think there are really old people who are snowflakes. They cannot handle hearing something they don't like. And I think there's millennials and Generation Y and Gen X, baby boomers, Gen Z. I see them everywhere. Americans are very bad at hearing things they disagree with and not getting all offended. I'm very good at that. I hear things I disagree with and I go, oh, that's interesting. I'd like to hear more. Most people hear things they disagree with and freak out. And so Paul says, hey, man, I disagree with you and here's why. I want to read to you some of his response and respond because that's the thing we should do. We should be able to disagree with each other and still like each other. Now, this response is somewhat long, but I want to do it justice by reading it in its fullness, and I will comment along the way. Here's what Paul had to say about my commentary. He says, One, I had to turn off your show for the first time after your comments about Franklin Graham and Donald Trump. To which I'd say, Okay, I, don't, I wish people wouldn't turn it off when you disagree. Keep listening. That's a great thing to do. I do that all the time with people. I disagree, and I keep listening, but we're fine. All right, he says, I found your comments disjointed and disconnect and disconcerting. Well, first, everything I do is disjointed. I don't have ADHD, but sometimes when I get my microphone in my face, my thoughts go everywhere. So you found my comments disjointed because they were probably disjointed. Continuing on, he says, I admit, he, he says he, he admits he hadn't heard the entire comment by Franklin Graham. But for my representation of it, it was Graham saying, I'm, I'm going to, uh, let me summarize this. Franklin Graham tweeted that Pete Buttigieg, the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, was wrong about homosexuality and marriage. Like what, what Pete Buttigieg was saying about homosexuality from a biblical perspective was wrong. Pete Buttigieg was getting the Bible wrong. And he is. He's totally wrong about it. And I even commended Franklin Graham for saying so. That, that that's good for Franklin Graham to do. But then the, the criticism Graham was getting on Twitter was, you seem to really care about this guy's morality, and you didn't seem to care at all about Donald Trump's morality. So why do you care about one and not the other? Continuing on with Paul's uh, his post, he says, you used, that's me, you used the event to launch into a diatribe. Well, we both know that that's what I do. I launch into diatribes. About Graham's support for Trump, in which you seemed to say, that Franklin was somehow hypocritical for supporting Trump due to Trump's adulterous behavior. I do believe that. I do think Franklin Graham is a hypocrite. I think that, not for what he did about Buttigieg, for what he did about Clinton. I think, and, that, I'm, and I'm, I keep saying I think. I'm going to be bold. I'm right. He wrote 
an opinion editorial that said Bill Clinton, because he lied to his wife and he lied to his daughter, he's going to lie to us as the American people. He's morally unqualified to be president. Franklin Graham said that about Bill Clinton, and then he supports like a puppy. This president, yeah, Franklin Graham is a hypocrite for having done that with Clinton and then behaving this way regarding Donald Trump. Back to Paul's post. My understanding is that Franklin has never said he supported Trump's infidelity. That's true. Only his ability to lead the country. Uh, so, yeah, I don't think Franklin Graham has said nice things about the president's character. He might have. I don't think he has. But he has definitely not condemned his character, and that's what the Christian and public life is to do. We're supposed to be out there calling evil evil when we see it. Uh, Paul says, you seem to assert that morality is or should be a qualification for running for uh, holding public office, I believe this is a grave misunderstanding. So you're right, I do think that. I think before I ask anyone about their policies, I want to know about their character. Uh, partly because I go to Scripture and I know that it's either Proverbs, I think it's in Proverbs, says that when the righteous rule, the people rejoice. And when the wicked, wicked rule, the people groan or the people perish, depending on your translation. And we know from a, a biblical understanding of even secular governments, it's good when moral people have power it is a bad thing when immoral people have power. Uh, and so, yeah, I think the, the Christians should concern themselves with the morality of their leaders. He, I gotta, Because I'm running out of time, I have to summarize some of this. He, he goes through the fact that there is no such thing as a religious test. Like, we, we can't require people to have a religion to be holding public office. Uh, this is totally true. Paul's right about that. And I would never want that in the Constitution. I'm asking the Christian and even would point towards Franklin Graham, how do we decide what we're going to do? So just because legally we can't require people be good to run for office, but for, our, for us to slap our support on someone, for us to give them our vote, our standard can be higher than the world's. The world can have low standards for morality. We should have very high standards for morality in who we choose to lead and who we publicly and vocally support. He writes... Uh, are there no conservative atheists? Even sinners can understand that lower taxes, low unemployment rates, secure borders are good for the country. Are we to say that the Declaration of Independence should be thrown out because Jefferson was sleeping with one of his slaves? By the way, I don't think Jefferson was sleeping with one of his slaves. I think that's a misunderstanding of history. I think it was his brother as the best evidence that uh, was with uh, Sally Hemings. Um, no, I've actually said this before. If you give me Jim Wallace, Jim Wallace calls himself a liberal Christian. I don't think he's a Christian at all. But he is, he's an absolute socialist, and then you give me a libertarian atheist. I'm with the libertarian atheist to vote, unless the libertarian atheist behaves like a lout and is publicly debauched and publicly depraved and treats people like garbage. If that's my situation where I've got Jim Wallace who says he's a Christian and he treats people well, and I've got someone who believes all the right things politically on taxes and spending He's got all of those philosophical things, you know, on the Second Amendment and property rights and states' rights, but he's a bad person. I'm just not going to vote. I'm not going to vote for the person with the bad policies who behaves, and I'm not going to vote for the piece of garbage over there who has all the right policies because I don't have to. I don't have to. I don't have to slap my name of approval on either one. So are there no conservative atheists? Yeah, sure. There's great con conservative uh limited government constitutional thinkers who are not religious. I am not asking us to only vote for religious people. I am saying that the Christian has a responsibility to look out at political candidates, and when one, one behaves like a pagan very publicly and aggressively, that we don't celebrate and cheer that person on, that it's a detriment to us. And 
Franklin Graham has been a cheerleader for the president, and he's not done a good job of separating the two. He cheerleads the president, but never actually clarifies, by the way, this guy's a philanderer. He's a bad person. We sure are thankful for a tax cut. We sure are loving the economy's going well. I do love that God has chosen to bless us right now with these uh, with these policies, but man, that guy should be condemned for his behavior and how he treats the weak and how he tr- like this is a this is what the Christians supposed to do because we got to be Christians before we are Americans. We have to be Christians before we are even conservatives. That's that's that that should be the the ethic that we are that we have. Um, so to finish up here, Paul writes, God doesn't assign different levels of sinfulness. If we reject one politician because of adultery, should we not reject another because he is estranged from his father? How far do we take this? Uh, I take this all the way to repentance and your your actual behavior right now. Listen, I, I, mean, I mean this. Listen closely, closely. If Donald Trump, at some point in the 2016 process, comes out and humbly says, I have... The way I behave during this campaign, it's been bad. I have caused so much division, and some of that's the media's fault, but I've behaved in ways that have that has caused division in the country. I've behaved in an immature way. I've called people names. I have treated the weak poorly. That's beyond all of my sexual indiscretions of my past. Just in this campaign, I have behaved dishonorably. I've been dishonest. I can vote for Donald. I could have voted for him. I could have gotten behind him. The The issue there is how, how far do we take it? Well, we, we take it with someone needs to actually publicly be behaving themselves. Uh, actually behaving in a way that is honorable in front of the country. That, that we could, that, that would be my standard, right? So I got some listener feedback there and I wanted to share it with you. Please be like Paul. Paul did a cool thing. He decided to write into the show. You can do that at Corey Truax Show at Gmail, Corey Truax Show at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or I uh, just do one of those, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. You can find m- me on any of those mediums and tell me your opinion on uh, on any given matter that we discuss. We'll be back with another new edition of the show next week. There's a lot of news we get, didn't get to, so we'll get to that and more on the next edition of the Corey Act Show. Until then, everybody, peace and love.